ourselves away. We are so grateful to the Lord to be here in the presence of the Lord again this Sunday. Just so grateful for all the Lord is doing um, through us, in us, and for us. We're just grateful for who he is. Um, I've been especially encouraged going through this walk as we've been walking through 1 Samuel and seeing all the different things that God is showing and revealing to us concerning himself and the nature of who he is and what that means for us. And so we are grateful to be continuing our walk today through 1 Samuel as we look at all the things that God has been doing this week. Now last week we noticed that God made his final declaration in terms of what he felt concerning Saul being king. And he mentions that he is going to appoint a king who would be pursuant of God and his own heart. And so we are going to come here today and we're going to see what that selection process actually looks like. Now, the text that we're going to look at today is a well-known text. But it's one that I think we've probably looked at with a different intention. And so today we want to look at this text to learn so much more about God, who he is, who he uses, and what those implications are even for us today. Now, no matter what you think about this text, it is all about God's choosing of David. And it is the choosing of David that will open our eyes to understanding so much more of how God operates. We will learn today the beauty of knowing that he doesn't just choose based on qualifications. He doesn't just choose on a person's righteousness of their works, but that he chooses based on his love and his grace towards people. So buckle up. This is going to be a good ride today. Go with me if you will. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You've got pew Bibles if you need to open them up. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to start in the very first verse. In 1 Samuel 16 and 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And I have provided myself for a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you should do. And you should appoint, anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they had come, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely. The Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. He made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word, God. We thank you how you are already revealing us to us who you are. We're understanding, God, the depths of your sovereignty and what that even means for our salvation. God, I pray that as we read this today, as we hear this word today, that you will reveal to us what it means to be chosen by God, what the implications of those of that is and are for our lives, and what we should understand about you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may notice that I have one distinguishable character trait, and it is that I happen to not be the uh, tallest person in the world. Um, as it currently stands, maybe for not much longer, I am the tallest person in my house, but Alex is right in the middle of puberty, so that may not last me much longer. Now, there are some people when I talk to them who say, well, I used to be tall in like elementary or middle school, and this is the same height I've been since then, and so they used to be tall compared to everybody else, but now they're kind of short. Well, that's not my case. The case for Brandon Knight is that Brandon's always been short. I was always older than all other kids in my class, but I was also always shorter than the other kids in my class. And so you could imagine that this particular text has a lot of meaning to me in the annals of my life because I've heard about David a lot. I've even been encouraged about David and Goliath, thinking somehow I could, you know, interject myself into being him, which I can't. But I understand what it means to be little. And so this text opens up with God taking a bit of a tone here with Samuel. He opens up by saying, listen, Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him as the king. You should be over this by now. God is even here having to remind Samuel that the rejecting is ultimately not a bad thing if this rejection happens because Saul was sinful. And so he gives him this instruction. He says that I have provided for myself a king from among the sons of Jesse. Now I want you to notice, if you remember, as we've been walking through this and as they were looking for Saul to be king, that his tone is different and even his phrasing is different here. Before, he says, he was appointing for Israel a king because they had asked for one. But now he's saying, I'm appointing for a king for myself. 
And so he tells him that he will send him down to anoint the king that he has chosen. This, again, is different from what we saw with Saul because it was a very public display. Israel had requested the king, and so they all knew that Samuel was being commissioned to find that king. After all, Saul is still the king, though. And so this mission can't be so public. And the fact that Saul remains the king does present for us an issue. It's not good to be looking for a new king if the present king is still living. It's like those football coaches that, you know, they're terrible and the ownership doesn't really want to admit it, so they secretly start looking for a new coach while they already have a coach. And so for Samuel, he knew that if Saul found out that he went down to find a new king, that he would have been killed. And so God instructs him to go down, and he says, but I want you to go down and offer a sacrifice. That way, they won't know what you're doing. Again, we are seeing some differences here between the priest and prophet Samuel and what Saul had done when he was given instructions by God. While Saul balked at the instructions of God, Samuel listened, even though he was fearful for his life. He goes down and he has his private purpose and it's between just him and God that he needs to find a king. Now, if you go back and remember when Samuel was looking for the king before, everybody could almost lay their eyes on Saul and know, okay, this man is going to be somebody's king. Bible says not only was he good looking, David's good looking too, but it said that in his stature, he actually towered over everyone and there was nobody even close to his height. He was gorgeous to look at and he was towering over everybody. One of those things I am, the other one I'm not doing so well. And for Saul, he was obvious in the eyes of the people to be the king that they had selected. But you see, the problem was that that was the king that they wanted. That was never the king that God intended for them. Because remember, God was their king. See, their whole purpose of selection, if you remember, was that they wanted to be like the other nations. They have a king, we want a king. And the way you became king is that you usually came from a good lineage. You came from good stock. And so they wanted somebody who externally looked to be a good king. And that's how they ended up with Saul. That mistake, however, God is making sure is not going to be repeated here. Now, God is showing Samuel the difference between him and man. When Eliab comes in, Samuel sees his stature and his size, and I can imagine he got those little heart goo-goo eyes, and immediately he thinks, well, obviously, this must be the man for the job. And he is ready to anoint him to be king when he sees him. But then the Lord gives him the words that will shape the entirety of our understanding of God and the way that God works. And it reads like this from Scripture. Do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
What God is saying here is effectively there are a set of eyes that man uses and there is a set of eyes that God uses. But see, we really need to figure out, well, why doesn't God look at our outer appearance? That's one of those things I think we've just readily accepted, but we've never really peeked into, but why not? In theory, it, it makes sense, but that's because most of us aren't physically superior. Most of us aren't super gifted at anything. Most of us don't come from great stock. And so we don't necessarily want to be chosen by our external appearance. But there are some people who do. There are some people who naturally look good for the job. They're built, they're shaped, they come from good stock, and they want to be judged like that. But the reality is, is that most of us are not like that. Now, this is going to up, open up a wider conversation that we need to have. But before I get there, let's, let's be honest. We love an underdog. We love it when the ruddy, scrappy team beats the perennial favorite. Well, we, we love it unless you're an Alabama fan, right? You don't want that. You, you want your team, the superior team, to dominate. But that's actually one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of college football, by the way, because there isn't a lot of parity in that league. The bigger the schools with the most money tend to recruit better players, and therefore they tend to win more. In the NFL, they have a saying called, any given Sunday. Now, the problem I have with any given Sunday is that I remember, much to my chagrin, when the barely playoff Giants beat my undefeated Patriots in the Super Bowl, to which my dad celebrate. We want to see a team work for it. We hate when people buy their wins. We want to see them go through the work. But why do we feel that way, though? I think because deep in our hearts, we know that it's not fair that the biggest, the best looking, the most privileged gets the better treatment. Deep down, we know that there are special and gifted people who don't come from an advantaged position. But even us, in our sin nature, still tends to lead on us picking the most obvious talent for the job. And so God's whole message for us here is that I do not choose the ones that you think are the most qualified. He says our eyes look on the outer, but God's eyes know the heart, and God can see what we cannot see. So what we learn most importantly about God is that his love, thanks be to God, is not reserved for the superior. It is not reserved for the most gifted. It is not reserved for the most talented. But it reaches even to who the world says is inferior. But why? Because the only other way that we could be chosen is that we would have to be chosen because of our goodness. We would have to be chosen because of our righteousness. We would have to be chosen because we come from good stock. And none of us is good enough to be saved. What he is establishing is that no one here is good enough to be the king. The only person who would be qualified to be the king would be the person that God alone qualified. 
Now, I want you to notice what's happening here in the text. He doesn't just say that the other son isn't the one, but he says, I have rejected him. Now, it doesn't say so, but I'm assuming he had not done anything to be rejected. But why is that important? Because David had also not done anything to be accepted. That is where we really need to focus. God is establishing something here for us. There is nothing that any of us has that merits us receiving God's favor. Now, I want you to notice something. David here, as far as Jess is concerned, isn't even an option. He brings all the sons before him, and finally, it's Samuel who has asked, the Lord has told me, and I'm coming down here to look, for, is there no other child in this house? He's like, oh, yeah, David out there, but you don't, you don't want David. He keeps the sheep. He's little, and he's the youngest son. I mean, there are several reasons why he isn't, he isn't an option, but the least of it is that he is small and he is young. Now, this is actually a theme, if you look all throughout the Bible, that goes against their traditional Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, the younger never got anything before the older. But every time we see this with God, God shows us something different. God accepts Abel, the younger son, sacrifice over Cain, sacrifice the older son. Jacob, the younger brother, is chosen over the other brother Esau. The prodigal son, the younger son, is loved and received as the beloved of the father. God is establishing that all people are reachable, even if society says they are not. He is also showing us that he doesn't need to call the strong, but he can call the weak and the dependent and the ones that we would say are talentless. Our world has a lot to learn about God. What happened when Saul, the good-looking, strong person, was chosen king? He forgot he was chosen to be king. He was totally self-dependent. He was totally self-reliant. He did it his own way, as we saw last week. But now, God is showing us that those of us who are called of God are so utterly unqualified that we have to trust him. David, though, is not just king for no reason, but David is a precursor to us for Christ. Now, do you remember what Scripture says about Jesus in Isaiah 53? It doesn't say that he was beautiful. It doesn't say he was majestic. It doesn't say he was the obvious pick to be our Savior. In fact, it says he had no beauty. He had no majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Jesus comes not as this beautiful, clearly marked Savior, but rather he comes here as a lowly and common-looking man who is not unique in any way. Now, why is this? Well, I want you to think about it like this. Let's just say there were two singers up here, and one of them could, I mean, really sing. I mean, right up to the rafters, he could command the crowd, he could use his inflections, he could use his charisma. Everybody could look at him and know immediately, this is a great singer. And then there's his other singer. (laughs) He can't sing as well. He can't hit all the notes. He wasn't grand. He had very little stage presence. And he seemed like he wanted to make the moment about everything else but himself. Now, let's be realistic. Most of us would marvel, perhaps, even be moved by the one who performed so well. But what if after the performance you found that this was an atheist singing before you who didn't believe a word that they were singing about? How would you feel after hearing that? What would you think actually happened to you? Were you moved by the person or were you being moved by God? What if I then told you that the less talented person was actually a person who had given up their family because they were Muslim and they had believed in Christ and they had suffered a lot just to get to that moment And though they could not sing as well, they were singing with all their heart, with the conviction of knowing that God was real. Now you would say, well, why didn't you tell us that before? Well, because what we feel about something should not come from how well something looks. It should not come from how good something sounds. It should not come from the fact that he can preach really well if his life is not backing that up. We look on the outside, but God knows and discerns the intents of the heart. And God don't need to call the most talented. He needs to call the person who is weak, who will depend and lean on him. And we as a people have to stop glorifying a person's talent over their life and their heart. Jesus doesn't look to us like he has value, but he was God in the flesh, and he was obedient to the will of the Father. Let me ask you this. What is the most valuable thing that you can be? The most valuable thing that you can be is redeemed and obedient to the will of God. And this is the beauty of what we learned today. That can be anyone. You may not have come from the best living situation or the richest family, but you can be chosen by God. You may have come from the best living situation or the richest family. You can be chosen by God. The matter is this. We, in terms of our background, are not born on equal footing. Some of us don't have the luxury of being born in an advantaged or privileged position. 
But in terms of our sin, we're all equal. Every single one of us is born here equally fallen with an enormous sin debt that we cannot pay off. And this is what is beautiful. When God saves, he isn't looking at the economic status. He isn't looking at a loving family. He is looking at the heart. And every one of us, apart from God, has a broken heart that only he can mend and feel. Aren't you grateful for that? Now it makes sense when we read this in Romans 9, referring to God's choosing of Jacob over Esau. He says, though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was sold. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved... And Esau I've hated. God confirms what when we first hear it, we hate. But we learn to love. That he doesn't choose any of us because we are good. Initially, that angers us because every single one of us thinks that we are good. We think that we do have enough money in our account to pay off God's wrath. That is until we realize that we aren't good at all. We're not born here good. We are born here bad. We are born here wicked. We are born here apart from God. Hence our need for Jesus in the first place. But in two ways, we are mistaken. The first thing that we mistake is that we think that being good is good enough. We don't need to be good to be chosen. You know, we would need to be in order to be chosen by God. Perfect. We would have to be perfect. And not a single one of us is perfect. But Jesus was. Jesus is. He was the perfect and sinless Lamb of God. So when God saves us, when he chooses those of us who are lost, he takes the perfection of Jesus and now sees it on us as if it's ours. Do we deserve that? No. Not a single one of us deserves that. But thank God we are not saved based on what we deserve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you do not choose us according to our goodness. God, we thank you that you do not choose us according to our righteousness, but that you choose us according to your goodness and your righteousness and your power and your sovereignty. God, every single one of us without you has no hope, no chance, no shot at salvation. God, I'm grateful that you don't look at me and choose me based on my qualifications. God, I'm grateful that you don't choose me based off of my goodness, but you have chosen those of us who are saved because you are good and you are perfect. God, I pray that as we see what 
you are showing us in Scripture today that we as well can learn the beautiful lesson that you have taught us. That you're not looking on the external, but that you are looking at the heart. God, let us be reminded that when we see, the Bible tells us that we see in part and we know in part, and even through glass we see dimly. But you see everything how it is and as it is. God, I pray that you would give us your eyes. That in our own lives, when we make important decisions, that we won't just look on the external, but that we will fulfill the gospel and look beyond what we see. Beyond what we can reason and design. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, God, who may have been working and working and working to be pleasing to you apart from your redeeming love, let them see that that work will never be enough. That they can tithe their way and it will never be enough. They can sacrifice and give, but it will never be enough, God. There is nothing we can do that can supplant what Jesus has already done. And so we place our faith and our hope in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.